Hey, Jay. So, Shadowcat seems remarkably consistent across the multiverse, right? How so, Miles? Plucky teen, usually grows up into a position of authority, pretty much always on the side of good. Oh, but the ones where she's evil are so fun. Like there's that one Earth where she and Doug Ramsey and Eliana Rasputin were gangsters. Oh, yeah, or X-Men Noir, where she's a super thief. Oh, or Mutant X. Oh, wait, I thought Kitty was the thrall of Bloodstorm in that timeline. She was, but when Bloodstorm was possessed by the Goblin Queen... Kitty broke free? ...and became Black Queen of the Hellfire Club. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did... Welcome to episode 206 of Jay and Miles' Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to some gloriously goofy stuff. But first, we want to tell you about a thing. Right, so we are going to be tabling on the East Coast for the first time ever this August 18th and 19th at FlameCon. We're also doing a live show there. We do not yet know our table number or what day the live show is, but it's definitely August 18th and 19th, and it's definitely at FlameCon, and you should definitely come see us because we are delightful. I'm told we are. Um, but yeah, I'm really excited and a little nervous, but Jay, you spoke so highly of that convention last year, and you guys had that awesome conversation you, that you posted as an extra episode, and so I'm psyched to be part of this whole thing. Oh man, it's such a good show, and we have such good guests lined up for the live show. I am very, very, very excited. One of them has been on the podcast before in a different context, and the other one is going to be coming on for their first time, and they're both fantastic. So, that aside, we have some Excalibur for you, and as you may recall, the last Excalibur arc was very climactic. Where do we go from here? It turns out, quite a few different kinds of places. Some of which are full of lizards, which makes me really happy. I've been on a lizard kick lately, by which I mean my entire life. Um, but recently I discovered this amazing Savannah Monitor on Instagram, who has become my secret best friend. I, I don't think he knows that he's my best friend, except in as much as he's everyone's best friend, because he's just a really, really good lizard. Excellent. Lizards are inherently pretty great, I gotta say. Yeah, no, I mean, all lizards are good lizards. I, I very, very strongly stand by that. I will not disagree. Oh, uh, speaking of awesome things, I guess, and Excalibur. So as we record this on July 9th, we get some preview pages from Kelly Thompson's Mr. and Mrs. X, number one, which, by the way, so excited about that book, a book starring Gambit and Rogue, written by Kelly Thompson. It's going to be so good. In space. In space, right. And, and in that space, they find Cerise, you know, from Excalibur, from the era that we're covering, a character who, is lar who has largely been forgotten for years and years and years. And Kelly, thank you so much for bringing Cerise back. I mean, we haven't read it yet, so um, I'm not sure what's going to happen with her, but I'm happy to see her again. Yeah, I am so excited for that book. But back to Excalibur, and in fact, specifically, we mentioned that Excalibur's going some places, but let's start by talking about where it's been and giving a bit of a recap, because we're juggling so many books right now, I feel like every time we, we come back to a title, it's been like a month. All right, this is, this is going to be a big one, but nonetheless, previously on Excalibur. Excalibur is Britain's premier superhero team, headed by Captain Britain. Its original members are Captain Britain, Megan, Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Phoenix, that being Rachel Summers, who will be later joined by interdimensionally teleporting robot head Widget, fuchsia-loving space warrior Cerise, Leon and Fantasy by 
barbarian Kylan, and elfin would-be phoenix host wizard monk Farron. Excalibur has fought all sorts of bad guys, including the Crazy Gang, an Alice in Wonderland-theme group of folks, from a twisted dimension from the old pre-Excalibur Captain Britain days, who got sent to Earth-616, which is, of course, the main Marvel Universe. They've also done a lot of traveling between dimensions, as in their wake have a number of other folks, some of whom have been switched without their knowledge or permission, sort of as collateral damage to the whole dimension-hopping adventure. Now, as for one of those members of the team in particular, Rachel Summers, she's complicated. She is the daughter of Cyclops and Jean Grey, but from the dark Days of Future Past timeline, which is Earth-811, a dark alternate future of Earth-616, where Sentinels rule the world and everything is really terrible. After sending the consciousness of future Kate Pride back in time to inhabit present teenage Kitty's body to stop a war-inciting event and fix time, Rachel discovered that her dark future still existed and still sucked. So she was sent to the present, which was actually Earth-616, so an alternate present from her timeline, by Kate Pride, so that Rachel could escape the horrible universe that is the Days of Future Past universe, and she ended up stuck on Earth-616. Bodily, we should note, she didn't just travel back in consciousness as Kate had. And once on 616, Rachel bonded with the Phoenix Force, just like the quote-unquote dead Earth-616 equivalent of her Earth-811 mom, Jean Grey. We should probably talk a little bit more about the Phoenix and Jean Grey, because they're going to be a big deal. So let's cut inside this Previously On segment to... Previously with the Phoenix Force. Way back in Uncanny X-Men number 101, Jean Grey was piloting a space shuttle through a radiation storm to save the other X-Men. But the radiation was super shitty and she was going to super die. A cosmic force appeared, saying that it would save Jean's life if they bonded. Jean said yes and became Phoenix, a cosmically-powered superhero. But things went pretty bad thanks to Mastermind's manipulation and the whole power-corrupting deal, so Phoenix became Dark Phoenix and did some very bad things before being de-darked by the love of her friends, the X-Men. Jean was tried in combat for Phoenix's sins by the Shi'ar Empire, everyone's favorite space bird jerks, and the X-Men fought by her side. They might have won, but Phoenix ultimately made the decision to kill herself to prevent further harm. And it was really sad. And it was also one of the greatest comic stories ever written. Leading to one of the greatest retcons ever written, because as it turned out, the Phoenix had only been impersonating Jean. The real Jean Grey was recovering in an underwater ca cocoon where she would soon be discovered by the Fantastic Four. The Phoenix Force itself was still alive also. It accidentally sent some of its power to Jean Grey's clone, Madeline Pryor, intending to give it to Jean Grey. That's a very long story and not worth getting into here. And the Phoenix gave some of its power to Rachel Summers. But the Phoenix history on Earth begins far further back, as we learned in Excalibur. Eons ago, the first Farron, remember that's the elf guy who's running around with Excalibur right now, called on the infinitely powerful Phoenix Force. He summoned it to Earth, but an evil wizard named Necrom chased it away. In the present day, Necrom came back as the anti-Phoenix and tried to claim the Phoenix from Rachel, and the current Farron, who's kind of a little shit compared to the original but we love him anyway, was doing his best to inherit the power he'd always been promised. It was a whole mess. Necrom and Phoenix fought, uh, Phoenix helped by Excalibur and a bunch of other folks, and it was awesome, but as Phoenix won, she was rendered comatose. And woke up, well, not woke up, but reappeared, wearing the original green and gold Phoenix costume. Also, Excalibur's lighthouse, which had been their headquarters, and apparently, we found out, had been created across the multiverse to help the wizard Merlin be a manipulative jerk. Yeah, that got blown up. 
all across the multiverse. So Excalibur is now living in Captain Britain's old home, Braddock Manor. And that pretty much catches us up to today. So let me recap that recap real fast. Or at least the Phoenix relevant bits, relevant bits of it. Phoenix Force generates spontaneously in the universe. Phoenix Force is summoned to Earth by the original Farron way back at the dawn of time, but chased away by another evil wizard, Necrom. Phoenix Force, millennia later, uh, hears Jean Grey's psych psychic distress call, comes, rescues her, sort of, or at least sticks her under lake to regenerate, takes her place, goes dark, eats a bunch of broccoli people, gets killed in trial by combat, Jean comes back, eventually reclaims part of the Phoenix Force, but meanwhile, the majority of it has gone to her clone Madeline Pryor and her extra-universal daughter, Rachel. Necrom comes back to take on the Phoenix, fights Rachel along with the distant descendant of Farron, also named Farron. Rachel vanquishes Necrom by embracing the full power of the Phoenix, which gives her a snazzy green costume and renders her comatose. Basically that, yeah, basically that. I should note that this is far from the full history and continuity of the Phoenix Force. There is a lot more, including um, getting down with Odin and a whole bunch of Shi'ar stuff and a big fancy sword, and we will get there eventually. But for now, our focus is Excalibur, and the Phoenix is only relevant as it directly pertains to that. So we're going to save that for some kind of future Phoenix spotlight in which we'll burn down the podcast and rise from its, its ashes or something equivalent. And for now... Let's look at Excalibur number 51, Don't Drink the Water. This is written, of course, by the inestimable Alan Davis. It's penciled by a guest penciler, Doug Braithwaite, and inked by Jeff Albrecht, Jose Marzan, Mark McKenna, and Jimmy Palmiotti. It's neat seeing more and more names that we recognize in these. It totally is, yeah. With a creative team like that, with Alan Davis not penciling, you'd think this was a fill-in issue that would be kind of inconsequential? I mean, it sort of is. It is the best kind of Excalibur fill-in, though, because it feels like Excalibur. And again, you know, Davis is still writing it. It's not like he's off the title or off doing something else. And Dougie Braithwaite, while he's not Alan Davis, does a very good job. And I kind of want to start with the cover because it's an Alan Davis cover. And at this point, every issue is one that I turn to and say, oh, I remember that one. Because all of those right. covers are so terrific and so distinctive. Um, this one, though, is, is a particular delight even among those. It's a parody of Excalibur number one's cover, whose composition we've also seen referenced a few times over the course of the series. And this one features a heroic Excalibur made up of lizard people and a banner advertising new look, new logo, new species. I do love these cover references. I mean, some of them are overdone, like the Giant Size X-Men number one cover with all the heroes bursting through the page. That's kind of overdone. But this is great because it's always a really bizarre take. We had the Crusader X thing from Excalibur number 21. We had the X-Men Gold Annual number one where we came back to the original five Excalibur members. It's always so much fun. That was the one where Rachel Summers was wearing one of the podcast t-shirts, which was so cool. Oh, man, I am never going to get over like us or our stuff showing up in actual comic books. And that, I am convinced, is now, at this point, the most meta t-shirt in the multiverse. Because not only did it appear in a canonical X-Men comic, but it was in the, um, the Lila Cheney I Will Steal Your Heart music video. And we have a picture of Emma Bull, who's a member of the actual real-world band Cats Laughing, that plays with Lila in Marvel Comics, wearing it. Are we in the St. Elsewhere universe like we ourselves? Is that a thing? Is this just all one big meta continuity and we're just some numbered Earth in the middle of it? I feel like that would explain a whole, whole lot about current American politics. 
If only we could go back in time to fix it, but as we learned from Rachel Summers, it doesn't work that way. But speaking of better universes, we're going to look at one right now um, that is, is Earth-99476, and it is populated by lizard people, which are fundamentally better than regular people, because while some mammals are terrible, every lizard is a good lizard. And in this world of lizard people, we of course have a lizard Excalibur, and I love each one more than the last. So, who have we got on the team? We have, filling the role of Captain Britain, Britannicus Rex, which does sound pretty good for a Captain Britain name. And the youngest member of the team, Shadow Compsignathus. Listeners, I challenge you to find a more charming superhero name. So, I was a Compsignathus for Halloween when I was two. That's adorable! I, I think I knew that, but that's, that's amazing! It was pretty appallingly cute. I think my mom made me a, a dinosaur head out of, like, a couple of manila folders or something. Um, I, I will see if there are pictures. I, I was a really, really, like, horrifyingly cute toddler, so I feel okay about digging that up. <laughs> well done, toddler Jay. It's gone steeply downhill from there, and it was specific, not just a dinosaur, it was very specifically a compsignathus, because, you know, it's good to be precise about these kinds of dinosaurs. My little brother was a plant once, and similarly, a very specific plant. I couldn't tell you which one. I actually was, too. I was a live oak tree. Oh, well, beats the hell out of a dead one, I guess. That is a withering look I'm seeing on the video screen, Jay. As it should be. Listeners, live oak trees are a specific species of oak tree, found, among other places, in South Florida. Going back to Excalibur, we've also got Megon. Yeah, but like Megon, not Megan. And we have Nightstrutter. Finally, they are accompanied by Brigadier Alice Dunn-Stewart and her twin brother, Allosaur. And they are all lizards, and they are all very good. Jay, can we just start calling Alistair Stewart Allosaur Stewart? I feel like that's just inherently a better name. Alistair's pretty good, but Allosaur is superior. No, because it's not his name. <sighs> More's the pity. Anyway, Lizard Excalibur, or Reptilian Excalibur, or Dino Excalibur, they've been called in because a group of humans teleported in from another universe during a mysterious event. These are specifically reptiles. Like, they're very clear about them being reptiles and descended from lizards, and specifically descended from dinosaurs. This is a continuity, and Earth-1616 is also a continuity, as we will learn where dinosaurs were reptiles. Uh, we did not see, we do not see feathered dinosaurs in this timeline. And... On one hand, you can chalk that up to the, the gradual development of, of, of different theories and different evidence about the appearance of actual dinosaurs. On the other hand, you can just say, well, this is a fictional universe and the, the dinosaurs in this one didn't have feathers. Yep, this is a different universe, therefore whatever rules it has are correct. Magnetism. Yep, see? Just like that. Um, but yeah, so these, this family that got teleported in, this family of mammals, we've seen them before, right? Right. So... Excalibur is here because of, of a group of humans, you mentioned, these who have been teleported in. And we first met them back in Excalibur number nine. These are the Griswold family whom Widget switched with their Earth-616 counterparts way, way back earlier in the series. Bunch of tourists who talk about how they're trying to get to Wally World, named the Griswolds. Yeah, these are basically just the characters. Okay, they look kind of different, but still, from the National Lampoon vacation flicks, they just got pulled in. I did not realize that. I have not seen those movies. I mean, that's probably fine. He's got Chevy Chase. He's funny. He's just kind of a jerk in real life, as I understand. Wasn't he your stepdad's college roommate? 
Uh, he was, um, apocryphally, and this is going through a number of layers of retelling, so I may be getting this wrong, but apocryphally, uh, Chevy Chase was really, uh, an asshole whenever he was sober, so my stepfather would wait till he could smell the alcohol on his breath before he'd let him in the room. Um, I don't know if that's true, but it's a good story. It's kind of terrible if it's true. Well, Chevy Chase is apparently kind of terrible, so there you go. Valid. You know who's not terrible, at least on, on this earth? Carl Lycos. He is a mild-mannered pterosaur fellow, and he is here because the Griswolds, the 616 Griswolds who, who got switched, have been kidnapped by the High Evolutionary. And like his 616 counterpart, this High Evolutionary makes his home in the Savage Land where he creates horrifying abominations from the local wildlife. So Excalibur, of course, heads into the Savage Land to retrieve these displaced tourists. This is a different Savage Land than we are familiar with. Right, the Savage Land of Earth 99476 is basically a large smog-filled city, and its horrifying, monstrous throwback inhabitants are, of course, humans. <laughs> nice. But I really love, I think more than anything else in this version of the Savage Land, I love its version of Kazar. Because, like, in the main 616, Kazar is sort of a heroic, noble caveman with awesome long blonde hair and a saber-toothed tiger buddy. In this, he's, of course, a saurian. He's a reptile. And he's basically a 1990s yuppie. He's wearing a white shirt. He has his blonde hair combed back. He's got a little kitten. He's talking about all of his various medical ailments. It's pretty great 90s satire. His kitten is saber-toothed. I have a question about this. And I'm wondering whether this, this Kazar is supposed to be a commentary on the world or whether this is supposed to be a Kazar who was abandoned and raised by the humans of the Savage Land and therefore ended up in this form. That would be my assumption, yeah, because he's acting very much like a modern human. Now, that doesn't quite jive with the humans we see here because they do seem to be quite savage and, you know, they don't speak nearly as clearly as our lizard protagonists. And so the joke maybe falls apart a little if you look at it too closely, but I prefer to just appreciate it. I love the idea that, like, the primal, st the primal horrible, savage, most savage state of humanity is yuppies. Like, I think that's a really solid working thesis. Alan Davis, you may be making some valid points here. Now, after subduing the mind-controlled Fantastic Five, or the usual four plus Arachnosaurus, Excalibur faces the High Evolutionary, and Lyco sacrifices himself to foil the Evolutionary's dastardly plans. Thankfully, this wipes out the Fantastic Five's mind control, and Dinosaur Reed Richards is able to repurpose the High Evolutionary's machines to, into creating a dimensional portal generator. And just in time, because back on Earth-616, the lizard Griswolds have abruptly devolved into dinosaurs as a side effect of that Earth's pollution. Excalibur and the Fantastic Five are able to wrangle their errant civilians and head out with some parting war warnings to the humans about their ecological disaster of a civilization. Dinosaur Reed Richards talks about how great their civilization is and how they should be emulated by these poor 616ers. Everything we have created will melt back into the good earth. Should our species become extinct, nothing would remain to mark our passing save for a few fossilized bones. Wait a minute. Crazy if true. I really do love that. In an apartment above the city, Yap watches through a window as Gatecrasher swears vengeance to what may be either a hallucination or the actual ghost of hard-boiled Henry. 
Because as you may recall, back before Gatecrasher and Yap ran the hell away from TechNet, having gotten them stranded on Earth, they'd attacked Excalibur with the little Tweety Bird-like bomb, hard-boiled Henry, everything had gone horribly wrong. And Earth-616 is Excalibur? Well, for their part, they slept soundly through the whole thing. I love it. Di Thomas is trying to call them the entire time and just nobody's picking up the phone because they've just been through like the most climactic battle of their lives, possibly the battle against Necrom that the team was like formed to forge by the threads of fate. It's pretty delightful. I, I say they've slept through the whole thing. That's not entirely true. Farron has not been asleep. He has been hovering next to Rachel, staring at her and waiting for her to, di to die so that he can claim the Phoenix Force because that's what he does in his spare time. Farron's such a wonderful self-centered jerk. I'm a little sad he doesn't become as big a part of the book as Kylan and Cerise. I mean, I love Kylan and Cerise, and Farron is a total shithead, but he's a very entertaining shithead. You know who I feel like he's kind of an antecedent to? Quentin Quire? No, but another character from the Jean Grey school. Who's that? Q-Bark, Gladiator's kid. You know, you are not wrong, although in defense of my Quentin Quire answer, Quentin Quire did get the Phoenix Force, just like Farron really wants to. Yeah, but Quentin didn't want it. He just sort of got it by accident and wasn't wildly happy about it and then fled from it a lot and then was actually fairly chill about having it, at least in the far future, where he's got rad pink sideburns to which I aspire. But speaking of the Phoenix Force, that takes us to our next Excalibur issue. All you ever wanted to know about Phoenix but were afraid to ask, which is not an accurately titled issue. There is, I have never been afraid to ask anything about the Phoenix Force. I am an expert. I tread intrepidly into the murkiest depths of continuity and the weirdest retcons. I, I, I fear no, no weird Phoenix continuity. Although I, as a fellow expert, I fear no Phoenix continuity, but I sure am confused by it sometimes. This issue will help a lot, but given the retcons we have coming in the future, it's still a mess. That being said, this is a really ambitious issue right here, and it's also interesting that Alan Davis still isn't drawing. Instead, we have Will Simpson doing breakdowns and Jimmy Palmiotti and Dave Hoover doing finishes, but this is Alan Davis attempting to reconcile all the Phoenix stuff from the Dark Phoenix Saga, from the Jean Grey retcon, from Days of Future Past, and from everything that he and Chris Claremont have done in Excalibur. And all told, I gotta say, it's relatively coherent. The more of this run I reread, the more I feel like Alan Davis is the most direct antecedent to Al Ewing. Yeah, yeah, in terms of just uh, using all the disparate, contradictory bits of continuity as the building blocks for a great edifice, a monument to complicated glory. Yeah, picking up those weird, trailing, forgotten threads and weaving them into something coherent and interesting. Totally. That being said, this issue is very, very exposition-heavy, so we're going to try to not just, like, recap the whole thing, but uh, it might be a little more like that than usual. Yeah, and it's it's heavily caption-based, too, which makes it even harder. And it's got another one of those great Alan Davis covers. Exactly, because we have all the X-Men, specifically the all-new, all-different team, minus Banshee, attacking Professor Xavier with Jean Grey in her 90s costume glory shrugging in the foreground. If this doesn't increase sales, nothing will. Jean understands that Professor Xavier is a jerk, and having him face consequences for that will attract an audience. 
I really like the idea that that was the intention, so I'm just going to go with that. Speaking of Professor Xavier, the issue opens with him sitting in a study. With a book of poetry and a snifter of brandy, things are really chill. Cyclops even video calls in to specifically tell Professor Xavier that the crisis board is clear and nothing bad is going on in the world. Right, the professor is free to sit and read Robert Frost, which is kind of a terrible way to spend a relaxed evening, but whatever. It fits the professor's very specific cliches. But then Cyclops, who just video called in, actually shows up. And things get kind of wacky because Scott keeps cycling between his various eras and costumes. Xavier quickly realizes this is because he sees Scott Summers, who he's basically raised from a young man, as being all of those eras, all of those stages of his own development mixed into one person. That explains a lot. It kind of does, doesn't it? But I like this. I like the idea that if you're going to psychically assault Professor Xavier, he's, he's going to go, wait a minute, wait a minute, I know how these tricks work. I may not be able to get out of this trap, but I at least know it's a trap. Yeah, he is, at this point, it, it's, I feel like he's, he's been through so many of this, and he's, do, he's done so much of this, that he is, he is effectively a, a lucid mind control E. Yup. Now, as an 80s Magneto-led version of the X-Men attacks Professor Xavier, psychically, Xavier is expelled from the mind of, you guessed it, Rachel Summers. He's been going into her mind telepathically to try to figure out why she's comatose, and the Phoenix Force has been using the memories it gained through Jean and the memories it gained through Rachel to defend Rachel's mind. In fact, this last foray lasted 10 hours in real time, and Xavier has no memory of it at all. Right. So, Nightcrawler helpfully recaps... Rachel had regained all of her memories well before that whole Necrom thing because she had made the Phoenix Force dormant. She hadn't used the Phoenix Force, and of course, when she brought the Force up to fight Necrom, all that progress was undone. All of the memories she'd regained that had been scrambled through time travel and all sorts of other stuff, yeah, they got messed up again, and it went even worse than that because now she is, in fact, comatose. Now... Jean Grey, who's along for the ride as well as as the X-Men's other substantial psychic and the one with the most connection to both Rachel and the Phoenix, points out that those memories were in fact of an alternate future, one that was incompatible with the pre this present, and maybe that in incompatibility is what's caused that the instability. And I think it's a really good idea for Davis to insert this little comment right here, because this issue is already going to be confusing, and reminding the reader that, hey, by the way, the history that Rachel has seen and the history the rest of the characters have seen are totally different and incompatible, that helps. That makes it a little easier to focus on kind of timeline A and timeline B. Yeah, again, I am so impressed with how comparatively coherent Davis keeps this. Right? So, it's time to go into Rachel's mind again, but this time Xavier realizes maybe he's not the best person to do so. Maybe Rachel's friends from Excalibur and Jean Grey, Rachel's mom, should go in to freak the Phoenix Force out a little less. Sure enough, when they all link minds and head on in, they get a gigantic Phoenix narrated flashback that takes them back to the Big Bang. Yeah, so we see here that the Phoenix has been around, well, at least since the creation of the universe as we know it. And during that time, the Phoenix was, and it quotes, Without feeling, without emotion, without desire. And apparently, at least until this is retconned a billion times later, the Phoenix was only awakened and turned into sort of an individual, a conscious entity, 
when Farron, the wizard, the first Farron, not the little asshole one. I don't know, maybe the original Farron was also an asshole? What do you think? We have no basis upon which to assume that, so I, I think we can give him the benefit of the doubt. Well, he was better than Necrom, anyway, and better than Merlin. Mm-hmm. But who isn't? I mean, he might still have been a petty little shit otherwise, but he was at least on the side of, you know, good and preserving the universe. Right. So, the phoenix, like we were saying, came into consciousness when Faron awakened it. Unfortunately, then, Necrom attacked, fucked it all up, caused a great deal of pain to the phoenix, and caused the phoenix force to flee across the cosmos, only coming back way, way later for a scene very familiar to X-Men readers. When I found Jean in that space shuttle dying, I did not act with noble purpose. Like a jealous child, I wanted what I did not possess. A deal was struck. A devil's bargain. On the one hand, it's really cool seeing some of these climactic scenes brought back forward and all put together in one big story. On the other hand, Jean's dress was supposed to be black in that scene, not pink. And when Phoenix rose from the sea, she should have been in the green and gold, not the red and gold of Dark Phoenix. And that bothers me probably more than it should. Can birds see color? I don't know. Do we know any birds? Okay, listeners, if any of you are birds, especially cosmic space birds born with the Big Bang, uh, please let us know if you can see color. And also, please have mercy on us and do not turn our souls inside out or whatever it is you might otherwise do. There are a lot of jokes in Waiting for the Trade about uh, Gene having having sort of bird behaviors that go with having the Phoenix Force. And again, I, I don't actually know a lot about birds' visual perception, but I, I know we've got folks who listen who do, so... Hoping you can clue us in. It could also be that the Phoenix just doesn't have a perfect memory. I could imagine a lot of human details getting kind of lost in the big cosmic fire. Jay, you win a no prize. Perfect. Now, the Phoenix originally just copied Jean Grey, but over the course of living as her, basically became Jean Grey. She effectively repressed her knowledge that she was something else, that she was the Phoenix Force, but inevitably and gradually became corrupted by her own power and hunger. And during that showdown on the moon, after she'd been restored from Dark Phoenix to regular Phoenix, when she realized just how much she loved her friends and loved Scott Summers, she knew what she had to do. The X-Men stood beside me in a duel of honor. They were ready to die for me, for Jean Grey. I could not let that happen. I embraced my guilt. I had stolen a life, lived with lies and deceit, causing pain, death, and destruction. It had to end. I made the X-Men fear me. I wanted them to hate me, to kill me. How little I understood of the human soul. And of course, that's when the Phoenix activated an ancient Kree weapon buried in the blue area of the moon and blew herself the hell up. As we know, though, nobody actually died here because the Phoenix wasn't really Jean Grey and the Phoenix itself was still pretty much intact. So it went back to Earth to revive Jean, to undo all the damage it had done. And while it did so, it found Rachel Summers' essence floating over the planet. This was when Rachel projected her consciousness back to the past of Earth-616 to figure out why preventing Senator Kelly's assassination in Days of Future Past hadn't unmessed up her own future. Now, the Phoenix probed Rachel's alternate history. This was one where Jean had never encountered the Phoenix Force. There are different versions of that, and 
it's not entirely accurate in this one, and we can say the Phoenix, the Phoenix might have retconned it into it. But in that in that timeline, at least as represented here, Jean hadn't encountered the Phoenix and was killed by Mastermind's nuclear bomb in Pittsburgh, which in turn led to the increased Sentinel program. I like that we're not just getting more information about the Phoenix here, but we're getting more information about Days of Future Past, about Earth-811. That's the thing with Earth-811. Unlike some other alternate timelines that you tend to see in comics, information about the Days of Future Past timeline has just been drip-fed to us bit by bit by bit. I mean, originally, we didn't know about Ahab. We didn't really know about the Hound program. We just got tiny little pieces. And so the fact that we're learning more about Rachel Summers' past— as her, fra- as her fragmented memories have been repaired, as her friends are learning more about that, I like it. It keeps Earth-811 really mysterious and really impressively terrifying. After the military killed Charles Xavier, as we saw in a flashback way, way back in New Mutants, they turned Rachel into the first hound. Um, these are mutants who are, are trained and conditioned to hunt and track other mutants. Rachel felt the traces of each mind that she helped find and end, and she fought back, which led to Ahab losing his limbs. Another thing we're learning for the first time. That's why Ahab has robot arms and legs, because Rachel got super pissed off at being forced to murder all of her buds and telepathically whammied the crap out of him. Ha ha. Okay, telekinetically whammied the crap out of him. I'm sure there was some telepathy involved. Both. Both is good. After this, Rachel was sent to a containment camp for experimentation, and that's where we saw her in Days of Future Past. That's where she met up with the surviving X-Men and helped concoct the plan to send the consciousness of Kate Pride back into the past into the body of Kitty Pride to prevent the assassination of Senator Kelly and hopefully prevent the rise of the Sentinels, which didn't work, but still, very cool plan, and it certainly led to one of the best X-Men stories ever. The Phoenix explains... Rachel was crucial to the plan not for the telepathy and telekinesis she had inherited from her mother, but her own mutant ability to project her astral self through time. Jay, have we ever seen an instance where someone's inherited powers are described as being distinct from their mutant powers? I think this is the first and only time I've seen that. I suspect I'm forgetting another example, but this is one of the aspects of Rachel and of of heredity that makes more sense if the Phoenix Force was involved in her conception. Because high-order telepathy and telekinesis are byproducts of Phoenix, of, of the Phoenix Force, of hosting the Phoenix. Yeah, that's that's interesting to me. I, I don't know, listeners, if you could think of any examples of this, please let us know. I know we have mutants like Polaris who just have one of their parents' powers, but this is a strange combination. I kind of dig it. I, I keep on trying to think about whether Ruby Summers has has a second mutation aside from her her crystalline form. Yeah, that I don't remember, and I'm I'm blanking on that right now. But that seems sort of like the tree to bark up. Ruby Summers, what a great character! What a great alternate future. Anyway, when the whole Days of Future Past plan, the gambit, if you will, which you won't because Remy wasn't there, when that didn't work, Rachel projected herself into the past to find out why, and that, like we said, is when the Phoenix found her, found her consciousness floating above the planet. Rachel had endured inhuman suffering. She had been stripped of her humanity, her very soul. Yet she fought and won it back. There was so much I could learn from her. And it sent a shard of its consciousness to Jean in Jamaica Bay and followed Rachel to the future, where it met Kate. And Kate, unbeknownst to Rachel, made a deal with the Phoenix Force that would allow for a fresh start for Rachel. We've seen a little bit about this. We've seen Rachel and Kate try to stop Project Nimrod, and then Kate say the words Dark Phoenix to send Rachel bodily back through time into Earth-616 as present. 
Now we know why. Now we know that the Phoenix itself had offered that option to Kate, which I don't know. I kind of like that expansion of the story. It was already poignant, but now with this huge cosmic element, it feels like it's part of a larger tapestry. It's not just these two people with their close emotional relationship. It's also fate. It also suppressed and or warped her memories, or at least tried to. Uh, Rachel's inherent telepathy overcame some of that, and the Phoenix had to struggle pretty substantially with it, which I would take as the reason that they weren't really fully suppressed until Spiral showed up later. Yeah, this part's a little iffy. I mean, we never knew how much Rachel did or didn't fully remember from her Days of Future Past past when she got to 616, but, uh, you know, I'll go for it. I say close enough. So... We've been talking to the Phoenix. Where's Rachel now? We learned that Rachel, in her battle against Necrom, was straight up destroyed. She was obliterated. And the Phoenix had no problem building her a new body. I mean, that's just like a, a pre-breakfast exercise break for the Phoenix Force. But it was a little worried about building a new mind, because the last time it tried to do that, well, we got the Dark Phoenix Saga. So it's giving Rachel's mind time to sort of heal in a psychic equivalent of the cocoon that it put Jean's body in. And speaking of Jean, the phoenix here addresses her, addresses the phoenix's former kinda sorta not really host. Jean, I have removed all trace of my power from you, but I cannot remove the memories that tainted the life force I returned. Can you forgive the pain I have caused you? What about what you're doing to Rachel? Rachel claimed my power as her own, freely and without reservation. We are one. Shadowcat has her own take. We've only got your word for that. Seems to me like you just take anything you want. You're not wrong, Kitty. But the Phoenix does take Rachel's body off to space to heal... And sure enough, Rachel Summers will be gone for almost a year's worth of comics. She's not going to be a member of Excalibur for a while. This is the first time we've seen a core member disappear. I mean, we had Shadowcat not on the team after the cross-time caper, but we were still cutting back to her with some frequency. Rachel's just gone. Yeah, and she's going to be gone for about a year. Lots of this story is going to be retconned over time. Right, because here we learn that Rachel is forever bound to the Phoenix. Well, actually, she's going to lose its power after swapping herself in the time stream with Captain Britain. Remember that whole Britannic thing with that weird costume he wore? And she will still have some link to the Phoenix power, as will this dude named Corvus in his sword. When the two of them are in space, she gets, like, sort of a lower back tattoo that helps her with it. It's very weird. Actually, no, that was just what the Shi'ar branded her with when they killed her whole family. Jean, on the other hand, is going to later turn out to have an inherent connection to the Phoenix Force. And to be sort of almost a gestalt entity with it, eternally bound to kept together or connected in some capacity. That's been explored and to some extent ended finally with this year's Phoenix Resurrection. Yeah, that whole inherent connection, I mean, Grant Morrison certainly explored it, some other writers have as well. I will freely admit, I am an expert. I am half of this podcast and I just don't get that part. I could not explain what the deal with that is. It's complicated, and again, that's something that I'd love to do a spotlight episode on at some point, but today is not that day, because today we are looking at it in context of a specific era and a specific period of Excalibur, and here, it's time to move on to Excalibur number 53. 
or no, actually Excalibur number 54. We are going to skip 53 for now. It is a flashback issue. It's a one-shot covering some of Captain Britain's time as the world's worst roommate with Peter Parker. And move on to Excalibur 54, Curiouser and Curiouser. Yeah, we'll get to that fill-in another time. I know we also skipped that New Mutants Carnival issue toward the end of the run. Maybe we'll just do like a fill-in special at some point. But yes, number 54, the writer and penciler, it's Alan Davis. Yay, Davis is back to doing art. I'm so happy and inked, as usual, by Mark Farmer. Everything is good and true and right in the world. We open at Braddock Manor on a dark and ominous night, and I love what Alan Davis does here because we just have little angles of a, a terrified face, of screaming, of someone begging someone to stop, and someone giggling and saying they're having fun doing it and reaching for, like, surgical tools. It turns out it's just Kitty cutting Kurt out of the cast he's been in for, like, the last year of comics, but I love that we get this horror movie fake out at the beginning. It gives Davis such a wonderful chance to do uh, just facial expressions of terror and pain and glee. Now... Kurt is heading off to help a friend in a Marvel Comics Presents story. And Captain Britain, Megan, Kylan, and Cerise are off with Di Thomas, helping on a missing persons case. I feel kind of bad for Kitty. She's just lost her best friend slash gal pal. Like, I don't know. She's all uh, home alone at the mansion, like being forced to think about Alistair Kinross or something like that. And on this missing persons case mission, we get a great full-page spread of Captain Britain punching this enormous crowd of giant animals, like rats and griffins and a dodo and a crab and an owl. It's a great immediate stress opening. We have no idea what's going on, but it's just, well, Captain Britain's fighting a bunch of giant soft things. Okay, it's Excalibur. Yes, this, this issue does what Excalibur does best, which is throw Captain Britain into an environment into which he doesn't fit and which promptly makes a fool of him, in this case, with a horde of squishy cartoonish animals they knock the good captain through the ground and into an icy pool where he's about to drown until he finds the bathtub plug at the bottom and pulls it falling through and he just gets poured out of a teapot and falls in front of a flower with a face that rhymes at him a bunch before knocking him out with its spores like you said jay like the best captain britain is i have no idea what's going on and punching it isn't working god damn it captain britain it turns out that the reason Captain Britain is here in this mess of flowers and teapots and other fun is that at Scuffington Wallop, a townlet— Wait, wait, Scuffington Wallop? Is, is that a real name? That cannot be the way things are actually named in England. I mean, I've never been to Britain, but I know a lot of British people, and none of them have ever mentioned Scuffington Wallop, and I feel like they would have if it existed. Perhaps the reason that no one has told you about the town of Scuffington Wallop is that, at least at this point in the story, all of its inhabitants— primarily delightful and charming elderly folk, have disappeared mysteriously. So Excalibur gets to Tracken. Megan does what she usually does when that's necessary and turns into sort of a wolf lady, but she just keeps on shifting and becomes a white rabbit and jumps into a rabbit hole. That's the nice thing about emotional metamorphs in comics. They can always fit the story, whether it's serious or silly, and Megan is always game to do so. I love Megan so much especially when she's a dinosaur like she was a couple issues ago, but really always. Now, Captain Britain, Cerise, and Kylan manage to follow her down a very tight rabbit hole um, where the captain falls into the first scene where he saw him fighting a lot of animals. He wakes up now bound by vines with a lot of human-faced flowers rhyming at him about not spoiling anyone's fun, while Megan, dressed in a full Alice in Wonderland get-up, skips around with the Mad Hatter, March Hare, and Dormouse. Captain Britain, of course, is doing his best to just punch everything in sight because when all you have are giant fists and 
the fact that you don't remember that you're also a scientist, the entire world looks like a very punchable face. Speaking of faces, there's a great big smile hovering above the captain and around it a cat's face appears to declare to him. Temper, temper. So much aggression indicates deep-rooted anxiety. Perhaps as a child you felt emotionally starved. In the shadow of your ever-successful brother, Jamie, and your lovely, vivacious sister, Betsy. You could not compete with them, so you hid in your books, didn't you? Captain Britain rips through the flowers uh, to punch out the now fully formed Cheshire Cat, because, as he says, I don't like to be psychoanalyzed. He continues on to find Kylan fishing with a griffin and mock turtle, Therese playing flamingo croquet with royalty, which she looks way too natural doing, and follows, hey, Tweedledope and Tweedledope's rats toward a tea party where he finds most of the rest of the crazy gang who he hasn't seen in ages. Aha. Now, his first thought is that they're working with Arcade again, who, as you may recall, he fought with Spider-Man in Spider-Man's own book a month before, but this is way too realistic, and the crazy gang can't normally achieve this level of reality warping. Captain Britain, as usual, asks questions mostly with his fists, but it quickly becomes clear that the crazy gang, they don't know why they're being beaten up. They, they don't think they did anything wrong. And eventually they and Megan calm him down and lead him to something very unexpected. The Red Queen of the crazy gang, looking serene and cuddling Joy Boy of Technet? The giant baby that makes people's fondest desires come through monkey's paw style? This is unexpected. But it makes perfect sense when you break it down. Because Joy Boy turns people's fondest dreams into nightmares, and the Queen dreams only in nightmares and only wants horrors, so they basically cancel each other out and create a nonsensical paradise. Exactly! And... The villagers who had taken in the crazy gang in their wanderings before, well, the crazy gang just invited them here. The villagers are all here totally voluntarily. They haven't been brainwashed. They're just having a great time wearing fancy clothing and having tea and hanging out with talking animals in Wonderland. This is working out for everybody. This is delightful. This is the best kind of twist. Jay, when we retire, we need to track down a situation exactly, well, maybe not exactly like this, but along these lines. This would be a lot of fun. I... I think it might be a little bit nonsense for my taste, but you should go for it. I will. Well, after Excalibur agrees to just leave the crazy gang and the old people to have a great old time, although encouraging them to maybe talk to, like, their families about the fact that they haven't just gone missing or died, we go back to Braddock Manor, the organic computer basement of it, where the left-behind Kitty Pride and Alistair not Alice or Stuart, oh. are examining the new immobile widget. You know, the one with a sort of serious-faced metal helmet and fingertips and shoulder pads, and the rest of it's just like a psychedelic, translucent, awesome body. And Kitty is preoccupied. Kurt ran off because he blames himself about Rachel. They're not making any progress with their research until suddenly Widget manifests an awesome rainbow spectrum, concentric circles running through his translucent body, and begins to mutter spurts of language, something about sentinels, something about Catherine, panics, and then teleports away in a rainbow explosion. It looks so cool. Like the concentric circles you mentioned, Jay, it's like a psychedelic havoc. Oh, I love that. I just love that entire look. But yeah, this is new. I mean, 
which it used to be a metal head that looked kind of like Kermit the Frog's head and didn't really talk beyond oh gosh, oh golly, oh wow, and like ate everything in sight. And now it's super serious and it's talking about what appears to be a horrible dark future, maybe even days of future past. That's going to be a big deal, but uh, not until Excalibur number 66. We have a while until we get there, but damn, I love all the different mysteries that Alan Davis is just introducing one by one. It, it, this book really keeps readers on their toes, and I appreciate that so much. And not only is he introducing the mysteries, but they're going to get solved. That's my favorite thing. Exactly. My favorite thing outside of comics, and really in the world in general, though, is our listeners. And they've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Given the events of X-Men Gold number 30, do you feel like the door has been opened for Kitty Pride's queerness to make the jump from subtext to fully established canon? If so, how would this be done best in your view? Okay, so I'm going to try to do this with zero spoilers and say, first of all, I don't think that door has ever really been closed by anything other than fiat. Um, and that's because the obvious and organic way to do this, I think, would just be to make what was previously subtext into text. To have someone casually mention Rachel or Ilyana as one of Kitty's past relationships. Just have it come up that, yes, they were together. Not a big deal. Mentioned in a list of exes, something like that. And it's there. I mean, I, I would call it a retcon, but it's really honestly just codifying what was already there on the page. Exactly. That was already so in character for all of those characters. It would be effortless, and it would mean a whole, whole lot. So I, I really hope Marvel does that sometime soon, like ideally sometime very soon. That would be, that would be special. And also just awesome because, God damn it, I'm not a shipper, but I totally ship Kitty with both Liliana and Rachel. For me, it's not shipping. I just, I feel like queer Kitty Pride has been waiting in the wings for a very long time. I'd say it's about damn time, but honestly, that time has come and passed and passed and passed and passed. <laughs> right. So Kevin asks via email, a few episodes ago, you read a short selection where Beast quickly and charmingly differentiated X-Men, X-Factor, and X-Force. Is there a way to do that anymore? Do you think there's any defining characteristics of those titles anymore? Also, can you think of any way to quickly and easily differentiate blue, red, and gold? That's a really good question, Kevin. I mean, I will say that X-Men, X-Factor, and X-Force, especially X-Factor and X-Force, they usually mean roughly the same thing as they used to. X-Factor is generally a government or corporate-sponsored team, having to deal with the compromises inherent to that. X-Force are generally yelling murder machines of some sort, or I guess when they're stealthy, they're just sort of whispering murder machines. But the point is, they either yell or whisper very enthusiastically, and there's probably blood everywhere. The X-Men are often traditional superheroes, often based around a school. But here's the thing. Books that actually have the name X-Men in the title, not just X something else, but X-Men, they sell better. And so Marvel's been doing more and more of those. So it could be kind of hard to tell what's up. I mean, in the extraordinary post-Secret Wars era, we had Uncanny X-Men basically be an X-Force book with Uncanny X-Men put on the title, which was an interesting commentary on what the priorities were at the time, but still confusing. And right now we've got... As, as Kevin mentioned in, in their question, we've got three different books with X-Men in the title. So how do you how do you distinguish? Well, if we're going for blue, gold, and red, I mean, mostly it's just the lineups of the team, but also there are themes to be found. I mean, in blue, where we have the Time Displaced original five X-Men, it's time and dimension travel. It's a little like less silly Excalibur. We have moral quandaries. We have teenagers. 
gold is all about tradition and nostalgia, basically. It feels a lot like the 70s with some more modern stuff put in there. It's the book based at the school. That too. And Red is all about hope and politics and has a great lineup and is my favorite team book in ages. But I will agree, yeah, you don't have those clean differentiations that you used to have. Um, there are the New Mutants, and they've existed kind of in their own form for a while now as a semi-official, very informal team-slash-group-of-housemates, usually when they, they show up, who are tangential to the X-Men. They're, they're kind of the satellite campus team in a lot of ways. Side note, I'm actually really digging Matthew Rosenberg's New Mutants Dead Souls right now. I was so not sure about it when it was first announced. It's a weird lineup. It's a mix of the New Mutants and X-Factor Investigations. But I like them as kind of like the team of X-Men that deals with all the weird shit. I missed it when I was reading, but someone in the Explain Discord, which by the way is delightful, and if you enjoy the podcast and you enjoy the general general tone of what we do here and of the conversations that happen on our blog and would like to experience them in chat in real time, I will put a link to that Discord server. It's really, it's fun, it's nice, it's a great group of people. Um, but someone there pointed out that canonically as of that series, Strong Guy Knits, which makes me really, really happy. That just seems right. Yeah, I, I 100% buy that. Yeah. What you buy with your dollars is us being able to stay on the air and ad-free because we are a 100% listener-supported podcast. Oh man, that was a painful segue, buddy. I do what I can. Some of those levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. Let's start, as we most often do, with the angry Claremontian narrator. Daniel Marino. You considered yourself the apex of evolution, ascended far beyond your simian roots. But little did you know that evolution had taken another branch as well, one that would soon outstrip your own with the rise of Michael Simshauser and his languid and excellent lizard people. And speaking of lizard people, the mic today goes to Sexy Night Strutter. Mine dino got an entire world of mammals and their environmentally unfriendly cities. It boggles the reptilian brain. Jack Gray, can you imagine life without the kiss of nature lightly caressing the perfect leathery skin of an eager saurian? Sproticus, what a sad world it must be for those mammals, never knowing the majestic splendor of a quivering cloaca. But we, my friends, we have all the consenting dino flesh in the world awaiting us. Let us usher in a new romantozoic period upon Earth 99476. Did, did you do that entirely as an excuse to, to say the word cloaca on the podcast? No. Only, only partially. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by the long-suffering Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com, and we're working on getting it onto some more platforms as well. Check out explainthexmen.com for extra content, including visual companions for every episode, and be sure to come see us at FlameCon, April 18th and 19th in New York. Our show is 100% listener-supported, and some of those listeners get talked to about cloacas sometimes. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, Cable gets his very first solo series. Cable. Blood and metal. And its title is very, very on the nose. Yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it is.